Thanks for watching this episode of Turning to Him. I invite you to just take a few seconds right now at the beginning and subscribe to this channel so that you can get more videos like this in your feed. Thanks again. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Turning to Him. My name is Zach Batty, and I am here with Deborah Oaks Co. Deborah, thank you so much for taking some time and talking with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I'm the mother of five children and eight grandchildren, and one soon to be number nine, uh, a little girl. And my husband and I have been married for 47 years. Uh, he was in the military uh, for 29 of those years. And so we've lived all over the place. Um, we lived in Europe as well as all over the U.S. and had lots of different experiences and things that helped shape me. Yeah. Um, I like doing suicide prevention is something that I do. Uh, as just kind of a side thing. I do it as a volunteer and I find that very interesting uh, trying to help people. Sounds like a rich life. That's fantastic. From what I understand, the promotion from mother to grandmother is the best, that nothing is better than that. Oh, it doesn't get better. The grandchildren <laughs> are very, very best we have them all over all the time. We're really fortunate, I think, because we drug our kids all over the country and all over the world. Uh, none of them want to move, and they live all here right by us, which is fantastic. They didn't think that lifestyle was that fun, I guess. So we're really <laughs> lucky that they all live right here by us. That's fantastic. So all the time. That's great. Um. Well, when we were speaking before, you mentioned that you wanted to start by sharing an experience that happened uh, early on in your life. So first, yeah. give us some background on, you know, where did you grow up? Where where were you during all this? So um, I was actually born in Salt Lake and my parents left Salt Lake area um, when I was just about the time I was about to turn five years old. And I grew up in the Philadelphia area until I was 15. And when I was 15, we moved to the Washington DC area. So I grew up away from Salt Lake. Um, other than my siblings, there weren't other people of my same religion at school. So I had kind of a different experience than we have now. Now we live in Lehigh, Utah. Okay. Okay. So um, what I was going to say, Tell about was um, when I was 13. Uh, this was when I read the Book of Mormon from cover to cover uh, for the first time. And not having other people around me that were my same religion, it was a little difficult because for me, the gospel or church meant I couldn't do this and I couldn't do that. And yet, all of my friends at school could do things that I couldn't do. And I had to um, dress a little different and a little more modestly and all of that stuff. So to me, the church was just a list of rules of do's and don'ts. And I was reading the Book of Mormon and I came across 2 Nephi 2.25. And in there, it has men are that they might have joy. And I remember thinking about that for a long time, thinking, you have got to be kidding me. We are created just for the purpose of having joy. And I thought, that's not how this feels to me at all. And at 13, it, it truly didn't. And I thought about that for weeks. I, I remember just thinking about it all the time, like, why would God say that he created us just to have joy and then have this whole list of rules of things that we had to do? And I also had read uh, and probably just heard in Sunday school, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, um, Matthew eleven thirty. 30. 
And I thought about both of those together and I thought about it for literally weeks, uh, thinking about what were some of the lessons I'd been taught at church. And it was also a little difficult because my parents, I would say at that point in my life, they were completely regular active members of the church. But most of my growing up, I would say they were semi-active. But you have to realize we had, we lived quite a ways from the church. It was 45 minutes in each direction. And so I would say we were kind of part-timers at best. Mm-hmm. And for a while, when we first moved to Philadelphia, we didn't go at all. And so this was something a little more new in my life for my parents to be um, completely active. and. The more that I thought about it, and this was the basis of everything I believe and I measure by today, is I suddenly realized that those commandments, like not to drink, not to smoke, all of that, and those those are simple ones with the word of wisdom, but also to love my neighbor and to love even my enemies and all of that, that it was the basis of having a happy life that that was what God intended. And the my yoke is easy and my burden is light had to do with the fact that if we followed those, he could help us that much more. Um, as some of my friends, as I got older and had friends um, that went from smoking into harder drugs, it became very obvious that it was easier to follow Christ and his yoke was much easier. And my burden was a lot lighter than theirs at that point. Yeah. It is just, um, you know, just through observation, it is not an easy lifestyle to not live Mm -hmm. the commandments. It's a very difficult lifestyle and living the commandments aren't, isn't easy, but it seems like it's easier than the alternative. Yeah, I and once I realized that that these were guidelines for a happy life, um, and I it it changed my whole attitude toward church, and it, it was a major thing for me. Um, and one of the reasons this was particularly important was my parents were really only fully active for a few years uh, in there, maybe five at the most. By the time I was 15 and we moved to Washington, D.C., and my dad had, at that point, had been in the bishopric and stuff. We had a very tiny ward, so it was almost surprising that it was a ward uh, and not a branch because it was so small. But we went from that, my dad in the bishopric and very active, to moving to Washington, D.C. We had a much bigger ward. And after we had been there only about four months, I'd say, my parents made the decision that they were no longer going to go. And we had a family of eight children. And at that point, because of this background, my saying, you know, I want to have a happy life. And this at least gives me the foundation. And that's not to say that other people can't be happy necessarily without the gospel, but the same basic principles apply of being kind to other people and reaching out to other people. And at that point, I stood up to my parents, I was the second oldest, and said, well, that's fine, you can decide not to go, but we're going to, all the rest of us children are going to go. And when I stood up against my parents, my sister stood with me then. And she was not, she did not quite have her driver's license yet. So we had to get people to drive eight children to church. And this was when you had morning church and afternoon church and primary during the week, as well as seminary every morning, early morning seminary. And I'm beyond grateful to all the people, the very devoted people, because we'd have to get like three or four cars to come pick us all up uh, for every single meeting. And people did that until we had a way to get to church on our own. Deborah, was it always deep inside you? Because at thir- it sounds like at 13, 
you come from a partially active family, but you're reading the Book of Mormon cover to cover. Uh, so that's pre-seminary. You're not old enough to go to seminary. So what, what inspired you to read the Book of Mormon? Well, believe it or not, even though I was pre-seminary, um, they didn't have early morning seminary in Pennsylvania because we all live too far away. And my older sister, so the first year that she was a freshman in high school, they didn't have any seminary available to her at all. So she didn't do seminary. And the next year when she was in the 10th grade, they had um, they didn't have early morning seminary, but they decided to do a home study seminary. That was I don't know if it was that was the first that it was available or it was the first that our stake or ward did it. But they did that. And because we live so far from the church and so far from everybody else in the ward, um, my dad said that he would teach her early morning seminary. And because I was the second oldest and I just didn't like my sister doing anything that I didn't do, I said, I want to do early morning. I mean, I want to do home study seminary with my sister. So that's actually why I was reading the Book of Mormon that year is they let me do seminary a year early. Um, oh, thank goodness they did. So. That's fantastic. <laughs> So that's why I was reading the Book of Mormon was yep. for that reason. Okay, so we're, we're now back in Washington, D.C. And mm -hmm. I mean, it is the definition of it's taking a village to raise all of you as far as being raised in yes. the church. Yep. All those people were very, very kind. Wow. For how long does that last? Your entire time in Washington, D.C.? So, um, yeah, my parents didn't go back to church for about 30 years, actually. Uh, so we were all since grown. All my brothers served missions and uh, we were all endowed. Uh, the girls all married in the temple and all of that. Um, because of all those people that were kind enough to come and pick us up and give us a ride. My sister got her driver's license three or four months later, but then we only had one car. My dad worked in television. Um, and so he often worked on Sundays. So even though my sister had her license, because we only had one car for another year, um, we didn't always have a ride. By the next year, about a year after they quit attending church, uh, they did buy another car. And then we were mostly able to drive each other, but um, not always like for primary or something. We still relied on a lot of people for rides, um, mm. but, but we were more independent. And that lasted, you know, the whole time that uh, my siblings were growing up. We relied on people to give rides and to be helpful, even though as each one of us got our driver's license, we would, we would drive the others as much as possible. Yeah. Well, what a blessing to have received such a strong testimony of the commandments early in life when you had every opportunity to just slip away from the church. Yeah. Well, it was because of that of reading those scriptures and thinking about it for a long time and thinking about what were the commandments. And because of that, sometimes people will say, well, this is what you should do. And I don't want to give specifics because I don't want to point anybody out and or offend anybody. But every once in a while, people will say, well, I think, you know, it's okay to do this or it's okay to do that. Or I'll see people um, not treating others very well just because they don't go along with their political views or whatever. And I still go back to that measure. Is it helping people be happy? Not just you, but other people. Is it something that lightens the burden or makes the burden heavier in our country? And I still go back to that and say, if it doesn't meet these tests, then it probably isn't okay. Yeah. Okay, so speaking of that now, you had an experience reading a book that also changed your life. Yeah, it's The Hiding Place, and I believe they are just coming out with a new movie about that book. I thought we hadn't heard about it for a long time. 
But what happened is um, our home teacher came over. We hadn't been married, but maybe two, not even two years yet. And our home teacher came over and it was right before Thanksgiving. And there's a very famous uh, part about being grateful in all circumstances that's in the hiding place. And what the hiding place is about is um, two sisters that helped hide um, Jews during the Holocaust and during World War II and saved literally hundreds and hundreds of lives, if not into the thousands. And they were finally captured and put in a concentration camp and how they were able to keep just, I believe it was just the four gospels uh, with them, not even any of the rest of the Bible, but I think it was just the four gospels and how they relied heavily on that to survive their circumstances. And there's a famous scene where uh, they give, they're, they're looking around and their conditions are just horrific. And, you know, st the straw beds are not only rancid and soiled, but they've got um, fleas and lice in them. And they're saying to themselves, you know, in these overpacked conditions, what, how on earth are we going to survive this? I just don't know. And the one says, oh, we read it in the Bible just this morning to give thanks in all circumstances. And they say, they they look around, say like, like what? What is there to be thankful for? And the one sister says, um, the fact that we're here together, that we were not separated, that we have, you know, these two sisters, that we have each other. And so the other one says, okay, I, I can be thankful for that. And then the other sister that's saying we need to be thankful, she says, and thank you for the crowded conditions that that many more will hear your word because they often in the evenings gathered together and read the scriptures, the, the four gospels that they had with the other women there. And uh, the sister kind of, the other sister kind of goes, okay, well, thanks for the jam cram packed, suffocating number of people in here that we, um, you know, can share your gospel. And so it was kind of a mix of not being very grateful. And then the other one says, and thank you for the fleas. And she said, nope, that's bridge too far. I am not going to be thankful for the fleas that are in here. I can't do that. It later turned out they usually um, in those concentration camps, they typically would come in and uh, do surprise inspections like at night. And, you know, having these four gospels, they were just lucky that they'd been able to keep them smuggled in. And they noticed that they never had those surprise inspections. And so they were always every night able to gather all of the people. And there were people there of all different languages. And so as they would read the, the scriptures, um, and talk about them. There were people interpreting them into all different languages. And they found that uh, later on, they found out that the reason their barracks never had those surprise inspections was because of the fleas, because even the guards didn't want to come in where the fleas were. And um, Corey talked, the, the one that didn't want to be grateful for the fleas, and the other one was saying, no, we have to be thankful for all circumstances, not just the good ones. That's what the scriptures say. And Corey at that point then knelt and thanked God for the fleas at that point. Well, the, this home teacher came and gave this message right before Thanksgiving, uh, when early on in our marriage. And I was so fascinated by it that I got the book and read it. And I had all of my kids read it. I think I read it to all of them a few times over the years. And we talked about what it was to go through difficult times, what it meant to do the right thing, no matter what everybody else was doing, no matter what risk um, and how all people are valuable to God 
And the one thing that really interested me in the book was I thought, okay, I've read those four gospels like a few times. Um, you know, this is just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I had never gotten the stuff out of it that they did, yeah. you know, and I realized I was reading the scriptures, but not really thinking about them and thinking how it applied to me and what it meant to really have the scriptures likened unto you and realize that these were not just stories, but something that should guide our lives. I was really interested in how they allowed the scriptures to guide their lives, just like the scripture being thankful in all circumstances. I would not have thought of thanking God for the fleas either, but that was a different perspective on what did the scriptures mean? And that that shaped how I started to read and see the scriptures because I suddenly realized there was a lot more there for a guide to my life than what I thought. And I started reading Christ's life, especially those. I started with the four gospels and, and then moved out to other scriptures. But all of a sudden, I realized that those four little gospels of Christ's life were very important. And I'm just going to give a few examples, if that's okay. Like the woman at the well uh, is, and, and these are just a few examples of things that, you know, we think, oh, I've heard that story. And, and we kind of pass it by without really stopping to think about it. But like the woman at the well, I think it's the only place in the scriptures where um, it talks about what time of day it was. It was right in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day. And then you have to say, well, why would that have been important to the story? I mean, out of all these few thousand years that the scriptures cover, it's the only time it really talks about that. And I realized it was saying that because this was an outcast of the outcasts. So the Samaritans were already an outcast as far as the Jews were concerned. But the fact that it was the middle of the day meant that she was coming to the well at a time that she, she already didn't feel like she belonged. She would normally, normally they would have gone in the morning or the evening but she went in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, so she didn't have to run into anybody else and feel shunned. Yeah. And so she gets there, and Christ um, asks her for a drink. Now, one of the things that I've since learned, because I've also, I, it also caused me to start doing a little research on some of the Jewish history and stuff, um, we know that the Samaritans were not liked by the Jews and vice versa. And, and there were some good reasons. They, about uh, just a few years before Christ was born, uh, they had gone in and completely, just, the Samaritans had gone in and completely desecrated the Jewish temple right before Passover. So they weren't even able to celebrate the Passover that year. And so there was, there was reason for, you know, some of the animosity. but. Um, the Samaritans, the saying at the time was that to take a drink from a Samaritan was like drinking the blood of a pig, which mm -hmm. the pigs, to eat any part of the pig was um, forbidden. And so for Christ to have asked the Samaritan woman, and the fact that it was even a woman because he didn't hardly talk to them either, um, the fact that he would ask her to give him a drink was very, very significant and very surprising to her, um, especially when you consider, I mean, I can't think in their context of their time to say that it was like drinking the blood of a pig. That's a, that was a pretty strong statement. Yeah. And then for him to also, her to kind of comment on her marital status, kind of almost like, well, if you knew, you wouldn't, you know, be as interested in having anything to do with me. And yet he did. Yet he still, despite everything, made sure she knew that she belonged um, to 
the same idea and the same ideals that he did. And it converted her and she became one of their best missionaries. I mean, it made a huge difference, um, his kindness and inclusion. Um, and that caused me to stop and think, especially uh, when there were people that I didn't like. And I remember there was a girl um, that used to say some lots of ni not nice things about me. And it had to do with the fact that it was I had a different religion than she did. And because of that story, I actually um, went out of my way to try and become friends with her. And we did become friends. And that was one of those moments that I said, oh, this actually works. And this is part of what that, of course, made my burden lighter because she and I became friends instead of her constantly being, you know, pretty unkind toward me and going out of her way to do things. Um, another is the woman caught in adultery. Um, I was most fascinated with the fact that the first thing Christ did was to make sure she was safe. And also it caused me to realize we don't know her backstory. Mm -hmm. um, caught in adultery could simply have meant that she was not married and pregnant. It could have been rape. It could have been incest. We don't know. And that maybe a lot of times we don't know the backstory but we need to make sure people are safe also. Yeah. Um, or yeah. the Good Samaritan. Go ahead. Did you have something? Oh, no, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, another story that really struck me was the Good Samaritan. Um, especially in light of once I studied what the Samaritans were, I realized that one of the things that the story of the Good Samaritan points out is if we do not love our enemy, we cannot love our neighbor. Mm. Because that was his enemy that yeah, he helped. Right. Well, and that's so uh, important at this time where, you know, at least in, in this country, we're very quick to cast enemies. We're, we're very quick to mm -hmm. ask somebody the role of enemy. Right. So that we can't we can't agree with them. We can't associate with them. We definitely need to get our shots in on Facebook on them and just whatever we can do, whatever we can do to villainize them. And we troll them. Yep. Yep. Um, now you, you later. So, I mean, you've had this experience. So you read the hiding place and it helps you realize, okay, there's more to the scriptures. I, I can really apply these scriptures to myself. And that's going to add a lot more volume to my life and just a lot more deep and understanding to my life. But then you moved to Germany, correct? Right, right. We moved uh -huh. to Germany. And that was really eye-opening for me also, um, living in a foreign country. And even though Germany's a lot, you know, I mean, it's a, a Western culture and more similar than a lot of other countries in the world, um, the cultural differences were actually more than I had expected. But when we moved there, it was in the early 80s. And so it was not like a only a few years after World War II, but it was still close enough uh, that I, I got over there. And these were some of the kindest, sweetest people that I um, had ever known. And just very kind, very giving. And I said, and their country was steeped in Christianity. And I said, how on earth did the Holocaust happen in a country like this? And I started really reading about the Holocaust. And especially where I had read um, The Hiding Place, I found it interesting. And uh, I learned some things you know, and, and how that happened in that country, I don't want to focus on. But what I did find was uh, the people of the hiding place, Corey Tenboom and her sister Betsy, were hardly the only ones. There were several people that did what they could to save, just like um, the family that uh, the people that hid and Frank's um, uh, family. 
that there were a lot of people that did that. And a lot of them did what they did because of their Christianity. And so I started reading about that. Uh, and this was another moment that it, it kind of went with the hiding place. But at the same time, it opened my eyes to, it was one thing to read about um, just a, a small family that did it with some other people that, that um, took care of people. But I learned a couple of other stories. Um, in one case, it was an entire country that saved almost all the Jews in their country. Um, and in another case, it was an entire town in France uh, that did it. And that, that really affected me because I said, if we truly are steeped in our religion and these gospel principles that Christ taught, um, this is what that looks like on a grander scale. So just for the people that have never heard these stories, I'm just going to tell them really quick. One is um, Denmark um, in 1943 is when the Nazis took full control of the Danish government. And up until then, they had not even made the Jewish people wear the Jewish star. And the reason was that uh, their king had made a comment that if they made the Jews in their country wear the Jewish star, all the Danish people would wear their jury, the star because they didn't want them to be able to identify who the Jews were uh, because they had um, in their country for a number of years, they had focused on that we are one country, whether we are the same religion or not, we are all one country. And they had also focused on uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And that had been, even in their schools, they had taught that. And so that was kind of a big deal to them. Uh, so they had gotten away with not having some of these problems until 1943. Well, in 1943, like I said, the Nazis took full control of the Danish government and they began rounding up the Jewish people. Um, and spontaneously, the citizens of Denmark together saved nearly, they, they, they didn't have a large Jewish population, but it was a little more, I think, than 8,000 or about 8,000 people. And they were able to gather them up spontaneously within a couple of days and get them out of the country and get them safe. Wow. And there were about, it was just, it wasn't quite 500 people that were still captured, Jewish people that were still captured. And I'll talk about them in a second. But I was really impressed that, I mean, this was not like a, a major big plan or anything like that. They had just worked together and done it. Yeah. And they did something um, that no other country did. And the other countries, maybe Bulgaria, but, but most of the other countries, once they rounded up the Jews, people looted their houses. And um, when they came back, they really didn't have much to come back to. Their pets were gone. But in Denmark, not only did they help at the risk of their own lives, most of the Danish people helped save them, uh, all of these Jewish citizens, they took care of their houses and their personal belongings and their pets while they were away in hiding. And I read accounts of them even painting their houses for them, you know, took care of their yards, all of that. And they came back to their homes uh, after the war. But the ones I was also fascinated with the fact that um, for the 500, the, not quite 500, but almost 500 that actually were captured, one of the things that the Danish did that no other country did was they made sure that the Nazis kept knowing these are our countrymen, these are our people, and you've got to allow us and the Red Cross to come in and inspect the conditions. And it took them a long time, I think it was at least six months before they got them to allow them to come and inspect the conditions. Um, 
And they also insisted on being allowed to send them food and clothing. And as a result, the Danish prisoners were actually treated better than any of the other ones. And none of them were sent to any of the death camps. Hmm. Um, simply because they followed that love thy neighbor as thyself. Yeah. yeah. And... Again, I realize you don't have to be a particular religion to believe that, but that was certainly, if I were to say that there was, what was the one main message Christ brought, it was loving one another. Mm. And that's the kind of difference that it can make, regardless of what religions everybody are, if everybody worked together, which also caused me to look and say, wow, this is what can happen when we do this. They did a study later on uh, where they went back to Denmark to ask the people what caused them to risk their lives and do this. And what they found was that the people didn't feel like they did anything heroic or anything else. They just said that was the only right thing to do because of that love thy neighbor as thyself. They said, that's what I'd want somebody to do for me. So that's what I did for them. And I didn't, they didn't even feel like they had a choice. Yeah. And there was a, um, a French town uh, that was also very different. Um, this town in France had just, they they traced it back to one pastor. Um, most of them were Huguenots, which I think are Calvinists, as I recall. And there was one pastor that really, in all of his sermons, made a really big deal about caring about the people around you and caring about um, your neighbor, no matter what religion they were. And he made a big deal about that in all of his sermons. And so, and he had done that for a long time. And so when the Nazis took control of France, uh, this town, because they for a long time had been very kind to each other and this had been a big thing. And even the people that were not part of that church, um, they worked together to save a few thousand Jewish people um, that were mainly children. And even the people that didn't participate just kept their mouths shut so that nobody else would get into trouble. Wow. And, and it shows the different, to me, those are the differences we can make uh, and that even just one person can make by following Christ. So that's yeah. a yeah. lot of what, what gave me that background. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like um, from certain perspectives, you've spent a lot of your life um, in a minority, whether you grew up mostly outside of Utah or outside of the church culture. Uh, mm -hmm. Now you go to uh, Germany, where I assume there aren't a lot of expatriates in Germany at the time. And so you're kind of on the outside there. And now you're reading these stories of the Holocaust and how um, you know, people are being mistreated, grossly mistreated. The stories in the scripture that speak to you are the woman at the well and the woman caught in adultery and these marginalized individuals. And then you also mentioned that now you work uh, at a suicide prevention or you volunteer at, with suicide prevention. Talk to me yes. about kind of, does that all tie together for you? Uh, yeah, um, actually it does. Um, because um, a few years ago, I'd have to think, well, I'll, I'll back up a little more than what I was going to. We had a son. Uh, he's passed away. He was chronically ill um, about, about a little before he turned 19. Uh, and that was when you didn't go on a mission until you were 19. So a little before he would normally have been ready to serve a mission about six months before, it became obvious that he was really sick with something and that there was something really wrong. And it took us a long time to get it diagnosed. He was um, 20 and a half. Yeah, about 20 and a half before we were able to get it diagnosed. Um, but he had a chronic illness that was eventually going to take his life, um, and it did. Uh, 
And, you know, I would say before that, um, that that, while I was, I tried to be kind and I tried to, you know, take that perspective, that was the first that I saw, even though I wouldn't have said he was a minority in any way, um, it suddenly caused me to see the world from a different point of view because he couldn't work. Um, we we had, we formed a company and we hired him so that when he could work or if he felt good enough that he could, um, that he could have a way of, of making money. Um, he had a hard time going to school uh, and, and a lot of things. And it helped me realize things from a different point of view. Uh, he also was in tremendous pain. And so, you know, when you have a situation where you really don't fit in with your peers, I mean, nobody really related to him. Uh, you know, he couldn't work. It was hard for him to go to school, although he did go to school some. Um, you're in a lot of pain. You know you're going to die young anyway. It's hard to stay out of thoughts of suicide. Mm -hmm. And so that was something we kind of battled. And it's a long story, what we did to help him with that. Um, one of the things we did, like I said, we started a company. But it suddenly caused me to look at that from a different point of view, because up until then, I had kind of looked at life and said, well, you know, we've got um, Medicaid and different things to help people in, you know, in Social Security. And I suddenly realized it wasn't just a matter of the money and barely having enough money to survive. It had to do with feeling like you were even a contributing member to society and not feeling like you were a burden. And that caused me to see the world from a different point of view. Now, what his ward did, his ward was really helpful. Um, and they went out of their way to help him feel part of things. Like they let him be a ward missionary since he couldn't go on a mission. He felt bad about that. They let him be a ward missionary. I know that for a long time, a member of his bishopric went up to him every Sunday, at least a member of the bishopric, and asked him how he was doing and talked to him to make sure that he felt like he had friends, to make sure that um, before he left on a Sunday, that if it, he had had any bad experiences, that they were aware of it and helped soften that. Um, and I saw the difference that that made to him to have people that really cared like that. And so that started to change me. And, and I had to start reading about um, suicide prevention and what causes that and what helps pull people out. And we were able to pull him out of that by helping him feel like he was a con still a contributing member to society and giving him opportunities to do that. Um, then that's kind of a long story how we started doing this. Um, we started reaching out to, um, mostly because I felt like it was the right thing to do. We started reaching out to the LGBTQ community um, that were of people that were attending BYU mm -hmm. because it seemed to us these were the very people trying to keep their membership in the church, trying to do exactly what the church asked. And we felt like they needed support. Um, for different reasons, different events happened that we became aware of that. And so we went um, and started helping them. We had a monthly dinner and it didn't take long for me to realize the toll that it takes that we kind of don't include them the same way that we include other members of the church. And so that's when I got involved with the state on suicide prevention. And one of the things that I noticed very quickly uh, as I started then doing research on, you know, what can be done to help um, pull people out of uh, having any kinds of thoughts of suicidality, there's basically three things. One is feeling like you're a burden to society. One is feeling like you don't belong. And more recently, just in the last couple of years, they found that 
feeling like you don't matter is also a big part of that. And when I look at Christ's teachings, that's the same thing that I'm finding. He helped people, like the woman at the well. She didn't feel like she belonged. She wouldn't have been there in the middle of the day. And so he reached out to her and the difference that that made um, when he reached out to her or the woman caught in adultery. The first thing he did was make sure that she was safe. And I'll bet he had her undivided attention um, after he made sure that she was safe, completely safe. I would bet that she listened to anything that he had to say. You know, if you think about that story, we only have an outside outsider's perspective. All they know is that everybody left and it was just the two of them and they don't know what happened after that. But I would bet that they had a time to talk and that first you need to make sure people feel safe and comfortable before you have any kind of discussion and you know, they need to feel like you've got their best interest. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's how I got involved in suicide prevention. A lot of it goes back to our son that was chronically ill and then wanting to help other people. Well, well, I tell you what, it seemed like um, whatever hot topic you're dealing with, whether it's LGBTQ at BYU or anything else that's in on across the political spectrum or anything like you pointed out if you go back to the teachings of the savior you will i hate the word never because statistically i'm i'm sure there's an example but i will say you will never be wrong in showing kindness you will exactly. never be wrong, never be wrong in showing kindness yep. i don't know the details of every situation i don't know how it's going to work out i don't know i don't know the best way to handle every situation i don't but what I do know is that I can be kind. People know yep. what I believe and that's, that's just fine. And you and I can believe different things, but I'm never going to be wrong in being kind to you and in letting you know that I care about you. And like you said, that you have a place in this world and that uh, you're about the space that you take up is valuable. I mean, let's see that, that didn't sound right, but you have value. You have value. Exactly. And, and I think, like I said, with Marshall, the biggest thing was he felt like he didn't have value, that he was just a burden and didn't have value. And when we focused on that, it made all the difference. Wow, that is fantastic. Well, I mean, not only thank you for taking the time today and sharing some of your experiences and some of the things that you've learned, but also thank you for doing what you do at Suicide Prevention. And thank you for doing what you do for those kids at BYU and just trying to have more kindness in the world. I, I really think that that's a bigger deal than most people realize. Um, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, a bit of a side note. So we recently had state conference and in preparation yes. for that, our state president invited us to, um, I think, President Nelson has spoken, I think, around 40 times in general conference as a prophet. And so he said, look, for the 40 days before state conference, I invite you to listen to a talk, one talk a day for 40 days. And just kind of hear what President Nelson's been talking about. And there is so, at least it spoke to me, maybe it spoke to me because it's the message I need to hear. Maybe I'm a naturally mean person. I don't know. But it just, I heard President Nelson over and over say, just be more kind. Just, just be kind. We, we need to compromise. We need to be civil. We need to show love and compassion. We don't need to uh, apologize for our beliefs. We have some tough beliefs and, and we believe that God has standards for us. We don't need to apologize for that, but we absolutely need to be kind and, and accept people where they are. And I love that. Yeah. And I, I liked his last talk on being peacemakers. I think we need more of that. Um, I thought that that was really an important message. Um, and I liked the one, was it Elder Stevenson? They gave the one on stone catchers. That was another one I really liked to, when you see other people not being treated that way, to be the one catching the stones that they aren't stoned to death. Yes. I loved, I loved that. Well, 
again, Deborah, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. As we close, can I put you on the spot and just ask you to bear testimony of the Savior and what he's done for you? Yeah, that would be fine. Um, it's kind of where to start. You know, the one thing um, for me, it comes down to the difference that um, he has made in my life because I feel like helping me know, like I was telling about even from when I was young, uh, the one girl that was being really mean to me and it was had to do with my religion. Um, just knowing it, it gave me a guideline. It, it gave me a way to say, how am I going to handle this? What's the best way to handle this? And I, that's kind of the way I see Christ as he came down and he said, here's the way to handle the problems in your life. This is, this is how I can help you. Even in the here and now, I also really, truly, truly believe that um, the atonement, while it is really important um, for repentance, I think it's equally important that it helps us get over the times that we've been mistreated, that it's a place to lay our burdens and that he can help us carry those burdens and get through the difficult parts of life. Um, I think that that part of the atonement doesn't get emphasized enough. Um, but I, I really believe that we can make a whole better world by following Christ's example and living the way he taught us to live. And by sharing that, I also think that the best way that we can bear our testimonies is through our actions and how we treat other people. And I wish that we would work more to do that. Um, and realize that importance of bringing people to the gospel by our very actions instead of just telling them what we think that they should do. But I do love my my favorite thing is studying Christ and his teachings for sure, because I really believe that he was the son of God and came to help us and to show us a better way to live and to treat each other. 